Lord, we are so grateful uh, for the shaping power of your spirit, shaping power of your presence in our midst, Lord. Without you, we'd be just like Sodom, depraved in mind, depraved in body. We'd be people only fit for destruction. And in your kindness and in your mercy, Lord, you reached down and pulled us out of that misery by the way of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. That particularly us as Gentiles, as non-elect, the not-chosen people, in your graciousness you made a way that through your Son all the families of the earth would be blessed just like you promised to Abraham. That in him, the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, blessing would be found for all the families of the earth. Thank you for each person around this room who I know have accepted Jesus. God, thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices and our own schemes and our own evil. You made a way for us. As we read this story tonight, it's a heavy, dark story. Lord, would you let us see in it, one, your saving power, your kindness to those who your favor rests on. And at the same time, as hard as it is, would you let us look full in the face of the darkness and evil of this passage and be reminded of the state of humanity. Be reminded of the fact that if it were not uh, for your justice and your kindness uh, and your, your hatred of evil, good would not be done. If we were left to do all the evil we wanted with no judgment, no justice for the oppressed, no hope for the beaten down and downtrodden, that that would actually be an evil act for you not to judge that sin when you are the God of goodness. So by your very character, you are required to judge evil, to judge the awfulness of humankind. And yet even in your judgment, you are long-suffering, you are patient, you are slow to anger. You're quick to hear intercession from the righteous. But there are moments when humankind is so dark, so unrepentant, so full of evil and malice, that judgment is necessary to do right on the earth. Thank you that the righteous and that those on whom your favor rests find salvation even through the judgment. Like Noah we saw, and like tonight, we see a uh, lot. And like all of us personally have experienced, moving out of judgment and into salvation. And we know one day, Jesus, when you return, it will be to bring judgment on the earth. And your people will be saved through that judgment. And we look forward to that day. 
We look forward to the day where evil's eradicated from this earth. And all that's left is your goodness and your peace and your kindness and perfect relationship with the triune God. Speed that day, Lord. And yet we know, as long as we've been waiting for it, as long as it has been to come, we know that it's because you are the God who is patient, long-suffering, and not willing that any should perish. That you have elongated the day in your return in which it would happen. Why? To save as many as would turn to you and find salvation. Thank you. If you had shortened the days, perhaps none of us would have found salvation. But we don't look lightly on your patience and long-suffering with the evil of humankind. And yet, like the prophets of old, we too pray, How long, O Lord? We want it to come soon so that the earth can be righted and that your people can dwell in safety and prosperity with your spirit as we do now, but in the fullness of your spirit before the Father and in the presence of Christ. We look forward to that day where we see God face to face. Holy Spirit, speed that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight, like I've said several times since the start of the evening, uh, we have a, a longer passage. I'm going to summarize parts of it because it is a long uh, two chapters we're walking through. But I felt it was necessary to tell the story of Sodom in whole. It, it really is not complete. If we do chapter 18 without 19, you're not seeing the results of Abraham's intercession. And you're also not seeing the conclusion of the story of Sodom. So I felt the need to put the chapters together. So we'll, we'll walk through each of them and I'll bring up some points. I obviously can't go in depth as much as I may normally uh, with less content. But I've named this week intercession and ruin. These are key terms, key realities of what's going on in these two chapters. The chapter 18 is defined by Abraham's intercession for Sodom. And chapter 19 is defined by the word that is used in the passages, the ruin of Sodom. Right? You might call it the destruction, the overthrow, but the word in the passage is the ruin of it. God says he's going to ruin it. It will be nothing, right? We use the term ruins when something is destroyed. It's desolate. It's cut off from the world, right? It's just what's left after destruction. Let's start. Genesis 18, verse 1. Now remember, we're coming on the heels of chapter 17, and chapter 17 was this covenant of the seed, right? The covenant of circumcision we talked about last week. Now here, the first 15 verses of this chapter relate to that covenant, to that promise. And so before we get to the Sodom story, the Lord has something to say to Abraham personally about his life. And interestingly, specifically to say to Sarah. Now although the Lord never, it doesn't seem he really addresses Sarah, he's speaking to Abraham, 
uh, Sarah's there, and it's really for her benefit that she's hearing these things. Okay, so the Lord appeared to him, him being Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. It's a hot day. It's, it's the midday sun, obviously, in the Middle East. Very warm, very uh, sweltering and uncomfortable. And he's taking his, his rest time, right? He's done his morning work, and now it's time to rest because it's the hottest part of the day. So he's resting. And while he's resting, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, Abraham, maybe he dozed off. Maybe he doesn't, doesn't know how these men got here. But it seems like he's surprised. All of a sudden, there's these three men's, men. And he sees them and he gets up. And he runs to them. Now, as far, again, this is something for us who know the story. <laughs> We're, we already know who these visitors are. But if you're reading this for the first time, it just says three men are there. And I think that implication is that's how Abraham understood it too. Abraham looks up and he sees what to him are three men. Right? These are just people walking through the land. And, and one thing we often forget because of that is we forget Abraham's generosity, his hospitality. Because we assume that Abraham knows that what he's meeting are supernatural visitors. I don't think so. I think Abraham thinks these are men. And over the course of their interaction, it's clearly revealed that it is supernatural visitor. It's the Lord and these angels, right? It's, that's revealed to him. The same way the narrative reveals it to us over time. But at this moment, um, right now, Abraham just sees men, right? He doesn't know the Lord has appeared to him. We do, because we read it at the beginning. But Abraham doesn't understand that yet. He sees three men, he gets up, he runs to them, and he bows down to the ground before them. And he says, my Lord, now notice Lord is not all capitalized, because he's not saying the name of Yahweh, which is what we see um, when you see all caps, Lord. He's just saying the, the typical word for a master, you know, when you would respect it. Actually, some translations translate that, sir. They say, sir, because he's just saying, my Lord, he's, he's being polite. My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. This is Abraham the host. He's hosting these men because... The ancient uh, Middle East, that, that what was important to them in the ancient Near East, is hospitality. They were good to guests. It was an imperative for them. And Abraham is more generous than most. And so he goes out, he bows down, he speaks kindly to them, and then he offers them to come into the shade of the trees and offer them a piece of bread. Now what we miss sometimes is this sounds pretty meager at this point, a piece of bread. It sounds, just come, we'll, we'll wash your feet, rest under the trees, which is still hospitable, but we forget what Abraham actually does after saying that. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and he took a tender and choice calf 
and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Abraham prepares a feast. We miss that. He said, I'm going to get you a, a morsel of bread. And then he makes a feast for these guests. Abraham is the generous one. We've seen that in all these accounts of who he is. And so he takes these guests and he brings them under his, uh, his roof, under his tent, to offer them a feast. And he even stands there like a servant himself to offer them food. And what's interesting about this is that it's almost, the narrator is almost like playing a joke. Like Abraham knows better than, than he actually knows. Because all Abraham knows is these are some men walking down through the land and he invites them in as guests. And yet what he does, what he does actually represents what you should do for the Lord. These measures of fine flour, that's a grain offering. In the sacrifices, you had to use fine flour. And he could have brought a goat or something like that, which would have been plenty. No, he brings a choice calf. He brings a, an actual calf, right? This is a great sacrifice to the Lord. He brings the choice one, right? What's it say in the law? They must be unblemished. That's the usage of choice. He's bringing something that looks like sacrifice to this guest who is actually the Lord. The narrator, again, like I've said from the beginning, we're thinking in terms of the rest of the Pentateuch when we read Genesis. Because we know this is the Lord. Abraham doesn't. But his, his feast is particularly appropriate to give to God. So then they said to him, here's the first sign that something's off. <laughs> Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. Okay, so what's odd here? How do these visitors know who Sarah is? How do they know her name? How do they have any clue about Abraham and what his life is? Okay, so it, they're out in front of the tent. It says Sarah, who's prepared this meal to some extent, at least the bread, is in the tent. And this mysterious stranger said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. What does that mean? She's gone through menopause. Listen, not only is she old, as in, you know, she, she's barren, she's for, infertile. Not only is she infertile, she's also past menopause. So even if she wasn't infertile, She's past the age of childbearing for even a fertile woman. She's gone through menopause. That's the point of, of that verse, right? It wants to highlight the impossibility of this woman having a child in natural terms. There is no chance. And so what does Sarah do? She laughs to herself, laughs in her mind maybe. She doesn't laugh out loud. But she laughs to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being Abraham, my husband, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, and I think this is where it's becoming clear who these people are, right? They're supernatural, and this is the Lord. He says, Why did Sarah laugh? 
saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Mm. This is a supernatural understanding. This is not, he happened to hear it. This is the Lord at work. The omniscient one, the one who knows the hearts of men and women. That's the point. Right? And again, interesting that Sarah and Abraham have this same reaction, which is, like I said last week, it's a prophetic reaction. Because what's the name of their child? Yitzhak. Laughing. They're going to name their son laughing. They both laugh. Why? Because it's absurd. Again, some commentators see this as a rebuke. I don't think it's a rebuke. If, if, if it is a rebuke, it's a light rebuke. He just says, no, you were laughing. And you're going to name your, your son laughing. When I'm here next year to see you, you'll have that child. He'll be with you. Laughing will be with you. Right? And the irony is that their laughter of absurdity, their laughter of derision, is going to become a laughter of joy, isn't it? That's the point of the name. He'll bring light and laughter into their lives. These old, in, in the word of Sarah, is the kind of word decrepit, right? We're old, we're, we're just... There's no hope left. And it's, it's understandable for Sarah's reaction, isn't it? She's lived this hard, infertile, barren, hopeless life of the thing that was supposed to give her life meaning of bearing children. I, I understand why Abraham and Sarah have these reactions. So all of a sudden we're here at the end. This is back on the promise. We just read 17, the seed covenant. And now you're hearing here, not only is Abraham received this promise in Genesis 17, now Sarah's received the promise too. If you notice, the entirety of this point throughout this passage we've read so far is focused on Sarah. Sarah will have a son. Sarah, your wife, will bear a child. All of this verbiage is about Sarah. So not only has Abraham received the promise in the last chapter, now Sarah's received the promise too. The promise of the one to come, laughing to come, right? Isaac. But the story takes a marked turn after this verse because Abraham, the generous one, he goes with these men. They get up from their feast. They've had their feast and it's time for them to go on their way. So the men rose up and they looked down toward Sodom. Now this should be a sign to us that they're, they have some intention. They're looking down towards the valley. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 13, remember who, who chose the valley? Lot did. Lot chose the land of the valley that was well watered and beautiful like the garden of the Lord, it said. And Abraham chose the land of Canaan, the, the land of Israel, what was left over. So we know when we hear Sodom, oh, Lot's that way. Lot's down there. And Abraham, the generous host, he's seeing them off, right? He says Abraham was walking with them to send them off. So he goes with them as they walk, and he sees them off to say farewell. 
And it's at this moment we get insight into what the Lord is thinking. The Lord said, and this means to himself, right? Not out loud. This is the Lord speaking to himself. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God choosing to reveal what he's about to do to Abraham tells us two things. One, it's very prophetic. Prophets hear the secrets of the Lord, right? That's the people who are given insight into the mysteries of God. It's prophets. Abraham's about to hear the plans of the Lord. That's one thing. And two, the hearing of the plans of the prophetic nature of Abraham is based on what? The promise God gave him. It's based on the promise. That's why he says, I'm not, why, why would I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's going to become a great nation. Well, how is he going to become a great nation? Well, because the Lord's going to make him a great nation. In him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How will they be blessed? Well, because the Lord said they would be blessed. He says, I have chosen him. And God gives a purpose in choosing Abraham. It's the first time we hear this purpose. For what reason? I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God chose Abraham <coughs> to, cho to choose a people. To make a people that would become the Lord's people. It's the first time we've heard this. It seems centered on Abraham up to this point, right? We've, we've heard he's going to have descendants. We, we've heard that promise. But it's the first time we've heard that the Lord chose him for the very express purpose of having a people. That there would be a people on the face of the earth that would be commanded to do righteousness and justice. That would be commanded to follow and observe the way of God. That's why he chose Abraham. So that he would bring the promises to fruition and have a people through which the Lord's ways, righteousness and justice would be observed, would be done on the earth. So now the Lord speaks aloud. He's speaking here to Abraham. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So there's three men who came in as guests. Two of them continue on their journey to Sodom. And the third man, the Lord, remains with Abraham. Which leaves us with this opening for Abraham to do what he's going to do next the great intercession. So Abraham heard what the Lord just said. There's an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord is parsing out whether it's fully true. Now we know the Lord knows everything, 
but he sent these angels to figure out whether Sodom deserves judgment, a last chance for them to repent and change. But while he stands before Abraham, Abraham has heard that the Lord is going to see if this outcry is true and to destroy Sodom. And so Abraham comes before him. He comes near. Now this is interesting and significant because, again, I'm not saying this has never happened before this moment, but it's never happened before in Scripture. This is the first time in Scripture that someone approaches God to have a conversation with him. Every other spot in Scripture we've seen thus far, from Adam on, the Lord approaches man to converse. The Lord approaches Adam and says, Where are you? The Lord approaches Cain and says, Where is your brother? He approaches people. This is the first time in Scripture the opposite is true. Man approaches God to speak to him and listen to the almost unbelievable boldness with which Abraham speaks to God. It is almost unimaginable, the forwardness with which he speaks. That's Abraham, though. That's Abraham's relationship with the Lord. This is a significant moment. Again, there's other moments where we've seen God talking with people. This is the first time man initiates it. The Lord remains, and man initiates the conversation. It's like it's the first prayer from our end. Humanity, first in Scripture, humanity approaching God to ask something. What does he ask? Well, like a prophet, he intercedes. Right? And of course, the great example of this will be in the next book of the Bible when Moses intercedes for the people of Israel in Exodus 32. Like Aaron brought up last week. But this, that great moment of Moses interceding for the people so that the Lord would not destroy them. In many ways, that's a reflection of this moment with Abraham. So Abraham approaches and says to the Lord, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the wicked with the righteous so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Wow. Can you fathom? Just personally, can you fathom talking to God like that? That's prophet language. They do it many times. They speak with incredible boldness. Incredible boldness. The best example, the best example in my opinion, in Scripture is Job. Some of the things you hear Job say about the Lord in the book of Job we would not even deign to consider saying. These are men of boldness who approach God in confidence. What's funny is when we read the New Testament, I think it's in Hebrews, right, where we're told to approach the throne with confidence, with boldness. Most of us aren't thinking like this. That's not what we think of when we think of boldness. This is boldness. 
This is boldness, to approach God and ask him to act in accordance with his character. He says, how could you do that, God? I know your character. You're not going to act in line with your character? How can you, the judge of all the earth, do something unjust? Shouldn't the judge of all the earth act justly? That's what Abraham just said. Again, the boldness is striking. He approaches in complete boldness. And after this moment, then he approaches in timidity, which is interesting. Approaches very bold at the outset and is quickly, quickly subservient afterwards. Listen to what it says. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. God's convinced of Abraham's argument. God's convinced of Abraham's argument. Yes, Abraham, you're right. The righteous and the wicked should not be treated alike. And I, the judge of all the earth, do act justly. And on the account of 50, I'll spare it. That's the Lord's response to the boldness of Abraham. It's not to rebuke him. It's not to tell him, learn your place, Abraham. Know your station. I am the Lord of the universe. How dare you? No. He accedes to Abraham's request. Yes, I am the judge of all the earth and I will do, just, I will do justice. So for the sake of 50, I'll spare it. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Would you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Abraham spoke to the Lord yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it. I will not bring it to ruin, is the Hebrew, on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once more. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. As soon as the Lord had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, before we go on to Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and what happens to it, I want to take a, a, just a moment to stop here and make a point. Because it's so significant. It's so significant to me. This great intercession, one of the greatest moments of intercession in the scriptures. Abraham the prophet interceding for a foreign people, by the way, not his own. For a foreign land, a pagan land. The Canaanites, praying on their behalf. What's so interesting and so often missed, Abraham's boldness runs out before the Lord's mercy. 
Abraham's boldness runs out before the Lord's mercy. It's significant. Now, I'm not trying to lay the blame of what happens with Sodom on Abraham at all, because you're going to see how many righteous we find in the next chapter. But it's significant to note Abraham says, I'm only going to speak this once more. And he goes to five. Sorry, he goes to ten. Excuse me. He goes to ten. And, and who knows what would have happened if Abraham said, let me go to five. Let me go to five. Well, I know it will still be destroyed because we see what happens in the next chapter. But, <laughs> but Abraham never asks. He never asks. And again, that's not to lay this like a sin at the feet of Abraham. He did nothing wrong. He's done nothing but good to these people by praying this prayer. It's not his fault. If only he could have gotten to one or something, then he would have saved them. That's not the point. But the point is, does the Lord ever say, don't ask me again? Never. He doesn't. Abraham specifically says, I will only ask this once more. Only once more. It is not the Lord who initiates that. The Lord's mercy has not run dry yet. I believe in my heart that Abraham could have pushed further. I think he could have. I think the Lord's mercy is that deep. And what's significant about the account, like I told you, is that Abraham's boldness runs out before the Lord's mercy does. That talks about the character of our God. He would have every right to say, Abraham, don't say another word. I have heard you and I have assented four times. Don't say another word. And he'd be completely within his right. He would have been completely in his right to say no from the get-go. He listened to the prayers of his favored one, of this man of righteousness. And his mercy did not run dry for these people, for these pagan and what you're about to see, deeply depraved, evil people. His mercy had not yet run when Abraham decided to quit and not push it any further. And who knows? Maybe Abraham sensed something. Maybe he felt... I can see that I can't go any any further. Maybe that I don't I don't dismiss that possibility. It's possible. Maybe he could sense it in the Lord's attitude. I I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. The Lord's mercy never once has the Lord said in the entire account or to the very end. He does not say no more Abraham. I'm done. Abraham runs out first. Let's go to chapter 19. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. If you don't know this, the gates of a city in that day and age are actually their public square. It's where the elders would meet to decide judicial rulings. It's where they would meet to do deeds of purchase. If someone was selling land or buying land, they would do it at the gate. The gate was the place of of business, of commerce, of 
wisdom, where the wise ones would sit and decide things. It's where the elders of the town would come to sit. So it seems to be that Lot has got some level of respect, some level of, um, he's, he's gained some level of allowance in this culture. He's become something in Sodom. That seems to be the case. Now we'll see that may not mean all that much later on in the text, but at this point, seeing him in the gate implies that he's an elder. It implies that he's a wise person in this town who, who comes to this public square to, to speak out on things. So when Lot saw these guests, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Oh, who's he sound like? Abraham. He sounds like his daddy. His real daddy, right? His, his biological father died in Haran, and Abraham's been his father for all these years. He sounds like Abraham, who is functionally his father. Right? And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house. Spend the night, wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet Lot urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Lot sounds just like Abraham. He's got the same generous spirit like the man who raised him. He, provi he provides a feast. This is two feasts in one day for these guys. That's the hosp hospitable spirit of this family. Right? And we'll see that I, we're going to have to wrestle. Well, I'll wait. I'll wait. We'll get there. We'll get there. But he offers them a very similar response, a generous response, like Abraham, like his, his de facto father. Okay? Interestingly, these men, they're still called men at this point, they, they don't want to stay with anyone, which... Oddly enough, in, in that culture, is very rude, by the way. To reject an offer is very rude. That a lot would offer a night in, in his home, and that for them to reject it would come off as very ungrateful to be offered a stay and a meal and to reject it. But by implication of what we're ready to read, it's possible that, you know, in our minds we should think these men don't trust these people. They don't trust the inhabitants of this place. But it says Lot urged them strongly. He pressed them. He, 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 he twisted their arm, perhaps. You know? He's like, no, you really, really, you need to. And, and they, he must have pushed them so hard that they're like, fine, we'll do it. Now, Lot may have a reason for that, too, as we're going to see. Lot may know the character of this town. Maybe better than they would know. So, verse 4, here's where the darkness starts. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them, so that we may know them. Right? Typical euphemism for sexual intercourse in the Old Testament. 
They are planning to rape these men. Interesting, the narrative makes a point to specify that every man of the town came. Why is that? What is that telling us? Are we going to find the ten righteous? No. We're not going to find any. They're all wicked. Every person down to the last man of Sodom is a wicked, depraved pagan. There's no other way to interpret that. The narrator specifies it was everyone who came to do this wicked act. Not only were they wicked in their own dark hearts, but they applauded each other for their wickedness. They joined together to do evil, like Romans 1 talks about, right? They not only invent new ways to do evil, but they applaud each other for doing it. It's Romans 1 language. So, they plan to gang rape these two men. And here's something that I think is missed. Now, what, the darkness of what Lot is going to say uh, is baffling, obviously. And I think we all can recognize that. But we have to be fair in what we see. Lot goes out. It says he went out to them at the doorway and he shut the door behind him. Lot is a brave man. He knows their intention. He knows what type of people they are, which is why he urged the men to come into his home and not sleep in the square. And yet he is still willing to protect these men to go out and face the mob alone. And shut the door behind him. Why does he do that? To protect those that are in his home. He goes out alone. Knowing their character. Knowing the type of city this is. He shuts the door behind him to protect those inside his house. <clears throat> so he says to them, Please, my brothers. He tries to be uh, disarming, doesn't he? He tries to, to reason with them. Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, it's a terrible thing. It's awful. And who knows? Maybe there's an indication that it was just a ploy. I don't know. Maybe he has the door shut. Maybe it's just an attempt to diffuse the situation. It's a dark thing to say. Now, the wrestling moment for me is this. That is so unbelievably wicked. And I have two daughters, and it's horrifying. Absolutely horrifying that a father would speak like this. And yet, the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, is going to call Lot righteous Lot. How do we wrestle with that? How do we wrestle with that? I don't know. You have to wrestle with it in your own soul, I guess. There can be someone in the New Testament like Lot is going to call righteous and he can say this absolutely vile, despicable thing in this despicable place where he's committed to his, his, this life in Sodom. Now, we'll see by the end of this story, the daughters are not particularly good people either. They're pretty wicked as well. They seem to have adopted Sodom's lifestyle. 
But Lot here offers them up. And, and it also tells us this, and one thing we know about from ancient cultures is that the sanctity of the guest was paramount. It was vital if you, as a host, you were required by honor to protect those who came under your roof. Guests. And so the severity of protecting his guests is so extreme that he's willing, at least it seems he's willing, to cast his daughters to this gang-raping mob. Horrifying. The whole situation is horrifying. I mean, there's not many more places we could turn to in Scripture to find a more wicked description of things going on. What's their response? Does it placate them? Does it seem to make any effect? Are they like, yes, bring out your daughters? No. No, they're committed to their depravity. They said, stand aside. And furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, as a foreigner, as an immigrant. And already he thinks he's a judge? Now we're going to treat you worse than we treat them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. The implication is they're either going to rape or murder Lot. Or both. Again, we miss the bravery for him to go out, knowing the intentions of this mob, knowing their thoughts, a brave move for him to, to go before them. And their response is, they're going to kill him. They're going to manhandle. The pressed hard is the idea of manhandled. They, they abused him. They, they roughed him up. But the men, these men, these guests, they reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them. And they shut the door. That's an interesting verse because it uses really similar language to something we've read about before. And we often miss this connection. It's made multiple times and we'll see it throughout this narrative, but that's a connection to the flood. Remember Noah reached out his hand to receive the dove and brought her into him. Remember the Lord shut the door of the ark. This is flood language. Why is it using flood language? Because this story is a reflection on the flood of the salvation of one man and his family through judgment. Lot and his family saved from judgment and a judgment on the whole, the whole plain, really. It says the cities of the valley, they're all destroyed in the area that would become kind of the Dead Sea area of today. Right? That's significant. I mean, well, think about this, by the way. What, what's the Dead Sea known for? It's just wasteland. Nothing can live in it. It's pure, like, if you've ever been there, it's really salty, so it's so salty you can float, which is kind of weird. And it's mucky, and parts of it fall under the earth because it's like giant mud pits that just sink down into the cavernous earth. And it's desolation. Nothing can live. Remember what it was like prior to that? Why did Lot choose it? Because it was well watered like the garden of the Lord. The destruction of the Dead Sea 
is directly, what it looks like and, and operates like today, what we know it as, is directly being tied to this event. The Dead Sea looks the way it is, and we think about it the way it is because the Lord rained destruction on it. It used to be a well-watered valley, like the Garden of the Lord. Anyway, there's a flood language, like I said. The men reach out and pull him in, and they shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. The commentator I was reading today, um, I really appreciated what he had to say. His point was to say that judgment is meant for repentance to some extent. If there is a judgment, like striking with blindness, its intention, usually the typical intention, uh, is not ultimate destruction, though there will come that place, and there will come that time, and there certainly comes that time sometimes individually. You know, you see in Exodus and so on. But ultimately, at a base level, God's giving people a chance to repent when they're judged. Right? Here, do they repent? They're struck supernaturally blind. And do they go home? No. They're still looking for the door to rape these men. They're vile. They're depraved. They are completely un repentant. Even when judgment comes, they still seek to do their evil. Heinous. So then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in this city, bring them out of the place for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But it appeared to his son-in-laws that he was joking. He was jesting with them. Why? Why would it appear that it's a joke to them? My guess is because they're men of Sodom. Just like the rest of them. So when morning dawned, by the way, this is the first time this term is used. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. These men all along had been angels that the Lord sent to look in on Sodom and do his destroying work to cleanse the, the, the land of these evil, dark people. The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot hesitated. Now again, I want to I say this because it's important. I told you already, the New Testament tells us righteous Lot. 2 Peter 2, that the Lord rescued righteous Lot out of the city. And that it, it even says that Lot's soul was disturbed day after day by the lawless deeds of the people of Sodom. That's the New Testament saying that, 2 Peter 2. Okay? But even though the New Testament calls him righteous Lot, which is true, we have to deal with that, righteous man is Lot, 
At the same time, it's clear that the account is distinguishing the deep, maybe even you could call it a different level of righteousness of Abraham and Lot. There's a distinguishing between the two. Because Abraham, the man of faith, remember chapter 17 we just read. Chapter 17, Abraham, the man of faith, he obeys instantly on circumcision. No doubt. Do it the same day. Lot just saw what happened. He's seen the judgment that's about to come. They supernaturally struck everyone blind. And he, they said, we're going to destroy this city. Get out of it. And what's his response? It's not, okay, i got to get out. <coughs> he hesitates. He hesitates. Even this righteous man hesitates. And why? Why does he hesitate? Well, the text, <coughs> the text doesn't say, but I have a guess. It's speculative, but here's my guess. He loved his life in Sodom. Despite the fact that he is a righteous man, the world is still a temptation. We can become so attached to our possessions, our home, our city, and it can be a wicked, evil place full of evil. Some we don't know about and some we do. And we can still not want to leave it because we feel so attached to it. We just couldn't bear the thought of leaving it. I think that's what Lot's experienced. This is my home. My children are here. The, the men, my, children, my daughters are going to marry are here. Everything I've had. Remember, remember in chapter 13, Abraham and, and Lot had to split up because they had so much. They couldn't even live in the same land. Everything he has, all his wealth, all his herds, all his flocks, he's brought down to the valley. He's going to lose it all. He hesitates. What's the Lord's response to his hesitation? It's compassion. So the men, these angels, seized his hand in the hand of his wife, in the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. They have to literally grab him by the hand and lead him out. Otherwise, he would have stayed and died. But the Lord's compassion is on this man. And they bring him out of the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? Even with the divine instruction, go up to the hills. Lot has to make an exception can you show me kindness once again? I, I can't make it to the hills. What about this little town it's called Zoar, which means small, the, the, like to be small. Zoar, that's why it's named that. The angel said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar, like I told you, to be small. 
The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. A lot has been made out of that verse and what to make of it. I don't know what to tell you, but I do know this. The looking back is emblematic, at least, of her heart being with Sodom. She doesn't look back because, you know, she's sad or she's sorrowful. It it seems to convey this heart that is still with the city. And, of course, it's a direct disobeying of what the divine command was, right? Don't look back. Don't even look back. Go. Escape from here. So Lot, on top of everything else he's lost, now loses his wife. The section that ends the story of Sodom's destruction is so... I don't know, I just see it in my mind so vivid. It's, it's heart-rending. Okay, we've seen all of this from the perspective of Lot up to this point. And now we go back to Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham arose early in the morning. What was the last Abraham heard of, by the way? The last he heard of was him asking the Lord to spare the city if he found ten righteous. He didn't hear any of the stuff that we heard. He didn't hear the angels going there and the pleading and the the, let me escape to this town. All he heard was, Lord, please spare it if there's ten. And the Lord said yes. So the next morning, this has been, by the way, this has been a 24-hour period. They came, they ate lunch with Abraham, they went to the city by evening, they stayed the night, and before the sun had rose the next day, Lot's escaped out of Sodom. But Abraham awakes the next day, early in the morning, and he went back to that place where he had stood with the Lord and the two men looking out towards Sodom. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. How heartbreaking. What was Abraham thinking? I'm sure he thought his nephew was dead. I'm sure he thought that all that his nephew had would have been completely destroyed and clearly Abraham knew that the Lord had not found the ten. And we know from reading the story that there was only one. Lot. There was only one righteous Lot. The New Testament, like I told you, tells us Lot was righteous. But listen to this. Lot was a righteous man. But listen to verse 29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Yes, New Testament tells us Lot was righteous, but this passage, Genesis 19, tells us the Lord remembered Abraham and saved Lot. Even more than Lot 
as a righteous man. Abraham, the righteous man, had his prayers answered. Now, it wasn't the prayer he thought. It wasn't the save the city. He couldn't find the ten. But on account of Abraham and his faith and his intercession, God remembered him and sent Lot out of the destruction on account of his uncle. On account of, really, like I said, his father, the man who raised him. On account of him, Lot was spared. And again, where did we hear God remembered someone? God remembered Noah. Flood language. One man, one family saved because God remembered them. Right? It's when the waters start to recede in the flood account. God remembered Noah and then the waters recede on the earth so Noah can be saved. God remembered Abraham and did good to this family and saved it out of the destruction that came upon the whole valley. There's one little addendum at the end of this chapter. And again, it's a dark addendum. It's so tragic because we look at the state of Lot's life. Now, after the fact, Lot went up from Zoar and he stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. They're going to get their father drunk and commit incest with him so that they can be impregnated and continue their family line. Again, what's this an echo of? The flood story. Noah got drunk, and his children shamed him. Lot gets drunk, really coerced into being drunk, and his children shame him. They dishonor him. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she, was ar- ar- when she arose. He's completely trashed, right? He doesn't even remember her coming in or leaving. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you can go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. It's a dark ending to this story. It's a dark ending to this story because Lot in chapter 13 is under the blessing of Abraham. He comes with him to this new land to receive a blessing and he's prosperous and wealthy and he is married with children and he has all these wonderful things and he lives in the beautiful garden of the Lord-like land in Sodom and Gomorrah in the valley. And when do we leave him? The last we hear about him. The last we hear about him. He's living in a cave with nothing 
His wife is dead, his property completely destroyed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and his daughters shame him by committing incest. How tragic. This is what his life had become. Interestingly, if you think about it, there's kind of these two parallel stories going on with Abraham and Lot. Like I said, they're both considered righteous, but man, their stories sound very different, don't they? It's interesting that this account ends with Lot's children being mentioned, both the daughters and then, of course, these children that are his sons, will be be his sons by his own daughters. Remember where the story started? Back in Genesis 18? It started with the promise of Isaac. It's these kind of two parallel mirrored stories where you have Abraham with the promise of his son coming and then Lot has these sons by the end of it and it's a dark mirror of each other. But it's also significant. What's significant about this? Well, the narrator of Genesis is preparing us to understand both the rest of the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament because the narrator is very concerned with us understanding where all these people came from. Where did all these tribes come from? Where did all these peoples that the people of Israel interacted with Where did they come from? Well, two of them that we're about to hear about came from Lot. So uh, Lot's firstborn daughter bore a son, and he called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Now, this is significant because the Moabites and the Ammonites are going to be two groups of people that Israel has significant interactions with through the rest of the Old Testament. We're starting to see the delineation of these peoples that Israel is going to interact with. And Moab and Ammon are two of them, significant peoples. But oddly enough, going back to this history, they're also kind of like a familial fight. Israel has these interactions with Moab and Ammon, and if you look at their relationships, they're essentially cousins. Right? Jacob would be the grandson of Abraham. And we think of Lot in the same way as a nephew or a a son of Abraham in a different way. This would be like Jacob's first cousin, Moab and Ammon, Moab and Ben-Ami, their first cousins. These are relatively closely related people in conflict for the rest of the Old Testament. And you know what's interesting too is later on the Lord will still show favor to Moab and Ammon and tell the Israelites to not take their land. Why? Because the Lord had given that land to Moab and Ammon. He had promised it to them. Significant. Because they were still under the blessing of Abraham through Lot. 
By the way, Moab means from the father. Ben-Ami means son of my people. Kind of significant names considering what happened. So the narrators laid out these family relations from Abraham that we will lead to peoples we'll see throughout the rest of this book and throughout the rest of the Pentateuch and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But what's really significant about this is that those with the favor of the Lord are remembered. The righteous are remembered, even in judgment. Abraham's prayer, his intercession, affected things. It actually did the work it was meant to do, which is plead for the Lord to save the righteous. And the Lord responded and did it. He saved Lot on account of Abraham. God remembered Abraham and therefore sent Lot out of the midst of the destruction. James will pick up the same idea, not the same language per se, but the same idea when James says what? The the prayer of a righteous man, or the prayer of a righteous man uh, has much power. I think that King James is availeth much. Right? That's the one maybe some of you might remember here. The prayer of a righteous man has much power. For what? To do the, the work that the power is set out to do. What's its example? It doesn't come to here. It goes to Elijah, who prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years, and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he goes on to talk about healing, the prayers of the righteous, right? Having the elders lay hands on and anoint, and the prayer of the righteous one will, will heal the one who's sick. Right? That's... Important. We forget that. We forget that our prayers do the work that they're set out to do, that our intercession matters, that, that prayer is powerful, that speaking to the Lord of all the earth, we can do it like Abraham with boldness and confidence to enter the throne room and speak to the Lord of the universe with boldness <clears throat> and that it will actually affect him. He will listen and hear us, be attentive to us. He will hear the words of our heart and respond to them. That's significant. You forget how significant our prayers are. God loves to hear his people pray. He wants to hear the desires and the the hurts and the pains and the grief and the joy and every piece of what makes us who we are. We can tell him of the evil we do and he'll cleanse us. We can tell him anything. He'll hear us and listen. Our prayers, our intercession is powerful. We need to remember that. We need to consider that. And that we, who are the people of God, we who are the righteous, we who are the saints, according to the New Testament, 
we have the favor of God on us and that he longs to and attentively listens to uh, hearing our prayers. Jesus picks up the same thing, right? When he speaks of asking from the Lord and you'll receive. Right? You do not have because you do not ask. All of that language that Jesus and the New Testament writers pick up come back to moments like these. The power of prayer and intercession. Jesus says, anything you ask for in my name, I will do. I will ask the Father. And then later on in John, he even says, no longer do I need to ask the Father. You yourself can ask him. We forget the privilege and the power and the benefit of prayer. Significant. So, in keeping with that, I will not forget this week to ask Tyler to lead us in prayer. All right. Well, let's pray. Let's close. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this night. We can come together and um, hear from your word and worship together and uh, just fellowship together. It's a special time for all of us um, and we're thankful for it. And Lord, I pray that you would, uh, that you would find favor with us um, in this world that's so full of evil and so full of darkness and everything else that you would see us as, as righteous people that we could, um, that we could be a light to the world that needs it so so much. Um, I pray that you would help us to um, to develop a heart of intercession, uh, of prayer for people around us and for our church and for um, our family and friends and and whoever else. That we would um, just have that heart that we would constantly be praying and interceding um, on other people's behalf and. Um, and I I pray that you would bless us for it and that you would bless um, the people that we pray for for it that it would that it would make a difference that we would see that it would make a difference and that we could um, just know that you are uh, at work that you are listening to us you're hearing what we're saying and that you would answer those prayers Lord Um, we can't get through this life without you and um, just remind us of that and remind us of who you are and how gracious you are to us and uh, just how much you love us. We thank you so much for everything that you do um, and pray that you would bless the rest of our night tonight and this time that we have together. In your name, amen. Amen.